Main speaker for this evening, Deb H. from Orange County. Hello. Good evening, everyone. My name is Deb. I'm a real alcoholic. Can everyone in the back of the room hear me? Yeah, we're good. Okay. The microphone is slipping back and forth. So, um, My sobriety date is March 15th, 1987, and for that I'm incredibly grateful. Um, thank you so much for having me down to speak at SoCal Speakers. Um, I spoke here the very first time in, on April 25th, 2009. You know, it was a very important day in my life, clearly, because I remember the date. Um, and you guys were a great audience then, so thank you for having me back. That must have meant I wasn't too offensive. Uh, oh, let me see. We were riding our we were riding our Harleys down here this evening um, to speak, and we just spent the last you know half of that trip splitting lanes. And I just moved to California to Orange County in January, and this whole splitting lanes thing is a little freaky for me still. So um, my shoulders hurt from being like this while I'm, you know, cruising in uh, in between cars. Um, anyway, so it's it's really it's great to be here. Thanks, Damon, for for calling and asking me. Um, I told you my sobriety date is March fifteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. So I have you know a little bit over twenty-seven years of continuous uninterrupted sobriety because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because there were people in my life when I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous who literally adopted me. And, and put me right into the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they tended me to make sure that I stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> they just would not let me get too far away at all. And they would do things like they would show up in my house every single night at 7 o'clock and wait for me to get in the car. And they would take me to a meeting every single night. And they made sure that I got put onto the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as it was outlined in that incredible book of ours. And I'm so incredibly grateful that they did that. I've run into some people lately. Um, I get to travel around and, and do AA all over the place, and, and, and that's a pretty neat experience. But I've run into a lot of people lately, and there's this new term called book-based recovery rather than meeting-based recovery. And they're talking about this book-based recovery because, you know, they had been sober and miserable because meeting makers make it. And they hadn't been working the program out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of a sudden, they discover the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and their lives get better. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm a member of this group, and we have book-based sobriety. And I was like, you are talking about that like it's new. <laughs> you know, spare me the little ego trip. But some of us got sober on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Therefore, we got to experience some happiness earlier on. <laughs> So, but it's, it's been, it's been pretty neat. You know, I've, I've gotten some new women in my life who've been sober. One of them has been sober for a couple of decades. And she said, you know, I just couldn't be more miserable. I just couldn't be more miserable. I want what you have. And I said, well, you, do you have a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? And she's like, oh yeah, absolutely. I've had one for 20 years. And I said, well, let, let's get that thing open because you have what I have. You know, the, the, the program is available to all of us, and I'm just incredibly grateful that I get to participate in the program and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because those two things together can't be beat. It takes both of those things working together in order to enable me to be open enough to have a relationship with this incredibly loving and faithful God that I now have in my life today. You know, when I got here, I had no God. I had no hope. None at all. I wasn't raised in church. I didn't know basic Bible stories. I knew I, I had none of it when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. 
When I got to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 15 years old, and I had been drinking round the clock for about six to nine months. It's all a little fuzzy. I started drinking alcohol when I was nine years old because I was curious. I wanted to know what that stuff was in those dark little bottles that were so incredibly, incredibly important around my house. I grew up in brutal active alcoholism. My father is an alcoholic. My father is still alcoholic today. He was mean, mean as a snake back then. And I was absolutely terrified all the time. There are pictures of me when I'm a little girl and my shoulders are pinned to my ears and my little hands are balled up into fists. And I walked around and I ruled everything I possibly could. Even in my neighborhood, I had a posse. And that posse, they did nothing without clearing it by me first. And I mean, that came to making up the little dance routines in the neighborhood to figuring out what the sledding run was going to be because I got I born and raised in uh, right outside of Akron, Ohio. So there were, you know, we had a lot of snow, so we'd make up interesting sledding runs down through our neighborhood, you know, cutting around garages and, and between houses and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't, and there was, there was not a fort built where I didn't approve the plan first. I was absolutely in charge of everything because inside my home, lack of power was my absolute dilemma. Lack of power was my dilemma inside that home. You know, my father was my very first higher power. His mood and how much he'd had to drink and what that alcohol had done to him that day, that would determine what I thought and what I felt, period. Alcoholism, alcoholism, when it's embodied by a human being, is an incredibly, incredibly forceful foe. And so when I was growing up, I was absolutely terrified of everything. I was terrified of everything. I was terrified of big people, things that moved too fast, things that made <laughs> made noises, shadows. I was terrified of everything. Because when you live with alcoholism and you walk on eggshells, you're never sure what's right or wrong. You know, the thing that I did yesterday was just fine, and I did it again today, and I got beaten. There was no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever other than whether or not he had had enough to drink that day and what it did to him because it always changed his personality. So lack of power was my dilemma. My father was my very first higher power. I wanted to know what that stuff was and why it was so darned important. And when I was nine years old, I spent the night with a girlfriend of mine. Her parents had a full bar in their basement, and we figured it out. And it was just that simple. I started picking bottles off the bar based on their label. You know, the first one I picked out was Christian Brothers. I used to say it was Christian Brothers whiskey because there were little pilgrims on the label. You know, I was I was nine. Pilgrims made sense to me. And um, But I used to say it was Christian Brothers whiskey, and I was giving a talk like this one night, and uh, Sister Maurice was in the audience, and she leans back and she says, Honey, that was brandy. And I was like, Well, leave it to the religious to know their booze. But anyway, I have no idea how much I had to drink that night, none at all. What I know is that we kept pulling bottles off the bar. None of them tasted good at all. And we were just drinking straight out of the neck of the bottle and trying to get it down. And at some point, I swallowed enough. And alcohol did for me what I've heard it do for so many of you other people out there. It absolutely was magic in my life. It was magic for me. What it did for me was that it finally gave me some relief from that constant, overwhelming, paralyzing fear that I had. It gave me some relief from looking tough and acting tough and acting like I had it all together and acting like everything was going to be okay when it wasn't. It gave me relief from all of that. When I got enough alcohol into my system, my little fist let loose, my shoulders came all the way down off my ears, and I exhaled for the first time. I had no idea. 
I had no idea what freedom was. I had no, and of course I didn't have these words when I was nine either. But that night, I was like, oh my God, I now understand why he drinks so much. I totally get it. Like, I wanted to know, like, I, my dad would come home and he would start drinking. I'd be like, gosh, I wish he wouldn't drink. You know, I wish he'd just put that stuff down because it was really important to him that he drank every day. And it was really important to my mom that he not. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So that night, after drinking and feeling that relief and, and just being able to exhale and relax finally, and the fear was gone. I just remember thinking, if this, if it does this for him too, no wonder he drinks. And my ma, she just needs a drink. I mean, that woman is wound tight. And if she'd just take a drink, then they could drink together, and they wouldn't be fighting all the time. And she wouldn't follow him from room to room. It would just, it, you know, it would produce peace in our house. I just knew it. I absolutely knew it. And it was a night of first for me. It was my first drink, my first drunk, my first blackout, my first hangover. I mean, I absolutely hit the ground running. I was just, oh, my gosh. And I came to the next day, and although I was sick, and I was a little worried about the fact that I couldn't remember everything, and things weren't making a lot of sense, what I remembered most was that overwhelming feeling of relief that I got from drinking alcohol. And I just made a decision that that very day, I said, I'm going to drink as much of this stuff as often as I can. Because why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? And so that's what I did. So by the time I'm 15 years old, I'm a sophomore in high school, I'm unable to draw a sober breath. And I mean, I'm unable to draw a sober breath. Are there any other daily drinkers in the house? There's always just a few of us. But you know, when you're a daily drinker, if you have to get sobered up to keep an important appointment or to show up someplace, you know, and it's, and it's got to be big. But when, when you're a daily drinker and you have to get sober to do that, it takes several days to detox and get it back together. And that's where I was at. If I needed to get sober for something, I knew it was going to be a really, really significant undertaking to do so because sobriety hurt. Sobriety, it was physically difficult. It was physically painful. It was emotionally painful. It was mentally painful. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. I wasn't interested in it. I just wanted to stay in oblivion. And if I never had to come up for air, that would be fine with me. Because here's what else happened. The more and more I drank, the more and more my body required that I drank. And when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, I didn't have a job. I didn't have an ID that would give me my own liquor. So I had to start spending a lot of time with people who scared me. I had to spend a lot of time crossing the tracks and going to that little house on the wrong side and, and spending time with the people who had no moral fiber left whatsoever. And the stuff that happened in all of those outings of my drinking day in, day out, day in, day out, when I would sober up, that's all I could think about. And I was so incredibly ashamed of who I was, and I was so overwhelmingly disgusted all the time that I was sick. I was just sick. And I just wanted to stay drunk. That was the only, that was the only answer for me. I have a sister. My sister's two years, not quite two years older than I am. And uh, she and I, we looked alike and we had the same mannerisms and we were absolutely, we were running buddies. 
We were absolutely thick as thieves. I drank and she did drugs. That way there was no conflict of interest in our house. <laughs> and we made all of our poor decisions together. It was, you know, because you got, you, you know, you got to have a road dog in that. When you're going to start making some really bad decisions, you got to have somebody to co-sign that crap. And so my sister and I, we filled that role for one another. And um, what finally happened is that she and I made a series of very poor decisions together because it, it is very, very difficult to be 15 years old, drinking literally around the clock and unable to draw a sober breath and to make a really good plan. It's just tough to make a good plan when those are your circumstances. And then the execution of the plan, it always goes south. It just does. And so my sister and I, I'm 15, she's 17, and we're making some real doozies of plans. And then we are executing them, and none of them are working out very well at all. And so she and I, we finally get caught. And it's just that simple. I had not been caught drinking. I had not been caught. I had been able to keep all the plates spinning or keep all the balls in the air. I was able to keep all of the adults looking that way rather than paying attention to what I was actually doing. And, um, and finally, the jig was up. And I can't, I don't have time to take you through any of that. Um, but what I can tell you is that I, I ended up in downtown Cleveland in Glen Bay Hospital, which was an inpatient treatment program for adolescents. And I had signed up to go in for a 10-day inpatient evaluation. There was a classmate of mine, and she had gotten in some similar trouble. They sent her up there. She went in for 10 days. They determined that she was not an alcoholic or an addict, and they sent her home. And I thought, by God, that's what I need. I need to go in there because I needed to get out of town. The people who had been supplying me, they were now in a jam. They were warrants out for their arrest, and they were not happy. They had moved to that dark little house on the wrong side of the tracks to stay off the radar, and my sister and I, our plan put them on the radar. And they were not happy, so I needed to get some space between me and them. And so when I went into this treatment center to do my 10-day inpatient evaluation, I had a plan. Of course I had a plan. I was going to check into this hospital. I was going to stay relatively sober during the day while the counselors were there, and I had to answer the mail. And then as soon as the counselors started falling asleep at night, I was going to sneak out. I was a master at sneaking out of all kinds of places. I was going to sneak out. I was going to go get a little something to drink on the streets of Cleveland. I would get back in before they woke up. So I never really ever had to get sober. That was my plan. When I went in, I found out that they locked the door to that treatment center and that there, that nobody had actually ever gotten out of it. Which meant that I was going to have nothing to drink for 10, 10 days, 10 days of sobriety. Who in the world wants 10 days of sobriety? I certainly didn't. I had no interest in 10 days of sobriety whatsoever. And so I thought my only, my only real plan was to just drink myself to death so that I didn't have to go through it. Again, I'm 15, I'm drunk all the time, and I'm planning. And so I decide that I'm going to drink myself to death. And so I go out on a bender like I had never been on before. And I just thought, you know what, if I just drink faster and harder, because I know that I'm close to death every day anyway. I'm drinking a fifth of vodka and a whole lot of beer and everything, you know, any other liquid that people would hand to me. I am, I am consuming a lot. That's how I'm staying, I'm staying in oblivion. So I know if I can just drink it a little bit more and a little bit faster, maybe it'll just take me right over the edge and I don't ever have to deal with any of this again. 
And so that's what I did. I tried to die. And I kept coming to, and I kept coming to. And the last time I came to, it, I was in Glen Bay Hospital in downtown Cleveland. And I was three days into a, to a non-medical detox. You see, they didn't believe that adolescents were real alcoholics. And so they didn't, they didn't put us through medical detox at all. They just put me in a room with some pajamas and everything was bolted down to the floor. And they let me shake it off. And it took me, because of, because of the amount that I had been drinking and for the length of time that I had been drinking, it took me a full 10 days to become constitutionally capable to sit upright and to keep food down. And what had also happened was while I was in that treatment center for those first couple of days and I was detoxing hard and I was, thank, mercifully, I was in a blackout for the first two and a half days of that, um, instead of lying to them about how much I was drinking and how often I was drinking, which I knew I was going to have to. I mean, I was pretty clear that if I went in and told them I was drinking a fifth of vodka a day that, you know, they would probably want to keep me. So I had a plan. I was going to go in there and lie. And, uh, and, uh, because I was in a blackout for the two, first two and a half days, I told them the truth. So by the time I came to at, <laughs> at that three-day mark, my, I had a little chart, and it already had the stamp right on the front of it that said alcoholic. And so as soon as my 10 days were up, I, I got my clothes, and they took me downstairs, and I was going to start this inpatient treatment program, and I was very, very unhappy that they weren't sending me home. I was very unhappy that they weren't sending me home. And as soon as I got down there, they called a code, and the counselors were rolling up their sleeves and loosening their ties, and they were running back up to where I had just come from. And I grabbed one, and I said, what in the world's going on? Remember, I don't like big people much, and I don't like things that move too fast or make too much noise, and all of that's going on all at the same time. And, and the guy just stopped and looked at me, and he said, your sister's here. Come to find out that while I was getting honest about what I was drinking, I also got fairly honest about what she had been up to as well. <laughs> so they called my mom at home and they said, yeah, you got another one. You probably need to wait that 10 days and when we get her down to treatment, you bring the other one in and we'll start her evaluation. Well, they tricked my sister and said, don't you want to go in and visit Deb? And I mean, shoot, she's my road dog. Of course she wants to come visit me. So they, she gets up there, and they close the door, and it locks behind her, and they throw her some pajamas and tell her she'll be staying. And she tore the unit apart. <laughs> so ten days later, she gets downstairs to start her treatment because she had a chart before she'd even gotten there that had drug addicts stamped on the front of it just based on information I had supplied. <laughs> And when she got downstairs, I ran up to her. I was so incredibly happy to see her because, you know, I am now, I am 20 days completely sober. 20 days. I'm not sleeping. I haven't looked at, at myself in the mirror for two years. Every quiet moment that I have, it's nothing but seeing a merry-go-round of the faces and the things that had happened to me or that I had participated in. My shoulders are permanently up on my ears. My little hands are balled up in fists. And now I am angry. I'm not just covering up fear. Now I am angry. And I'm uncomfortable. And I just want to get out of there because I just want some relief. And you know what they do in treatment? They talk. They talk all the time. There's lectures and groups and meetings and individual therapy. It is just talk, 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 talk. And I would, and I just was like, shut up. You know, I am 20 days sober and I don't want to be. And if you people would just shut up. 
and let me out of here for the love of God. Your people are nice people. Looks like you're really trying to do some good work, but I'm not interested. That bought me an extra 10 days of treatment. They thought maybe it would work against their success odds. So my sister gets downstairs and I go running up to her and she just looked at me and she said, don't go to sleep. (laughs) She was not taking this commitment lightly. So when I finished my treatment, they were going to keep her an extra several days as well. So when I finished up my treatment, I was leaving that treatment center and she caught me before I got on the elevator and she said, you do not relapse until I get out of here. She said, you are not going to be at home drinking while I'm in this hellhole because of you. You will wait. You go get my stuff. You go get your stuff, but you wait. And I said, fine. She said, I will never speak to you again if I find out that you've been drinking while I've been in here because this is all your fault. I said, fine. So I got out of there and I went and I got her random baggies of randomness. And I got, and I got myself my bottles and I stashed it all. And for some reason, I have no idea why, but I waited for 10 more days. Now I got no meetings. I got no God. I got no relief. I got no program. I have nothing at all. I have no desire to be sober. I, I have, I, I just want to have a drink. I just want to have it. I just need some freaking relief. And I wait for 10 more days. And my sister gets home finally. I whisk her upstairs. I lift up the floorboard. I show her everything that I have gathered in the 10 days that I've been home. Been very resourceful. And I'm like, tonight it's on. It's fine. Thank God you're finally home. And she said, well, they called it a spiritual experience. I said, who? Call what? And she said, the counselors, they called it a spiritual experience. I said, what what are you talking about? And she said, we're not relapsing. And I said, yes, we are. Right now. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, we're going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, why? And she said, because we're going to be sober. And I said, Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't even drink. And she said, they said, N.A. sucks. I have to go to A.A. (laughs) So off we go to A.A. And I'm telling you what, my cool card is officially gone. My mod drops us off 15 minutes before the meeting starts. That's really impressive. We stand outside. We bum cigarettes. I don't smoke, but I learned. And we talk, and we get dates with people who think that, you know, adolescent newcomers are cute. I can still pick you out of a crowd. Don't even try it. (laughs) Ooh, you wear that stuff. Just stay away from the girls I sponsor. Um, But we would stand out there, and, and we would act badly. And then we would go into the meeting after we were already late. And we had to be at least five minutes. I preferred ten minutes late. We would get there. We would walk through the center of the room. We would drag, we had concrete floors with the metal folding chairs at most of the meetings. So we would drag the chair across the concrete floor so that it'd bounce and make as much noise as possible. I don't even like coffee, but I have three cups at every meeting. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And when you people circle up to pray, I'm out of there. I am not interested. I don't know the words to the Lord's Prayer. There are a lot of words in the Lord's Prayer. 
That's a long prayer. And you are not going to pull my punk card like that. The president of Alcoholics Anonymous, his name was Max Shadburn. And Max Shadburn, his post was at the entry door, which was in the back corner of the room. That's where he and his guys were. And Max Shadburn, he ran everything back there. If anybody wanted to make any, you know, big changes in the meeting or whatever, they would propose it and then they'd look at Mac. And if he didn't shake his head yes, and that was not what he was intended and it didn't happen, he was a group conscience of one. But it was a great big meeting, a couple of hundred people at this meeting, and they were the gauntlet. And you had to walk through them in order to get into the room, which was another reason to run a little bit late so you could avoid that gauntlet. Because they were really old-fashioned sniffers. They'd shake your hand, and if you didn't look quite right, they'd pull you in real close, and they'd go, because <sniffs> if they smelled alcohol, you disappeared into a side room. I don't know what happened in the side room, but I wasn't overly interested in finding out either. And the queen of Alcoholics Anonymous, her name was Jane. And Jane had been sober since Christ was a child. <laughs> she was very old. And she wore her white hair pulled back in a lovely bun. And she smoked cigarettes on extenders. And, you know, a newcomer would drive her to the meeting. And she had an identified parking place like the one that I parked in tonight when I came. Nobody parked there but Jane. And when she got there, they'd yell in. They'd say, Jane's here. And newcomers would go grab a wooden high back chair, take it out car side, and gently load her into it. And then they would carry her down the stairs across the basement, and they would place her right here in front of the podium. And and she got the only crystal ashtray in the joint. The rest of us are using those metal ones that after you put out your cigarette butts on them, the bottoms are all wobbly. She got the only crystal ashtray in the joint. And everybody would line up to say hello to Jane. And she knew everybody by name, and she knew pertinent information about their lives. And it's just, oh, I hated her. I hated her. There was so much love up there. I never went near her. I knew who the players were. So I stayed in the back of the room, and I was just in utter and complete disruption. And one night, they put up with it. Now, I'm getting sober in Akron, Ohio. They take their AA a little seriously in Akron, Ohio. I didn't know it was the mecca of Alcoholics Anonymous, nor did I care. You people were all overreacting. And one night, I can tell, I can start to, you know, I can hear it and I can sense you guys are getting ready to circle up and say that darn prayer. And so I'm up and I'm sliding down the back wall and I'm sliding this way and looking this way and I run into something. And I turn and I look around and there is the president of Alcoholics Anonymous, Max Shadburn. He's standing in that door and he takes up the entire doorway. And he looked at me over top of these glasses that sat way down on his nose. I'm not even sure why he had them. And he just looked at me and he said, get in the circle. So I went and I got in the circle. And as soon as that prayer was over, I was back to that door and he had not gotten in the circle. And he looked at me and he said, are you alcoholic? And I looked at him and I said, you see, I didn't really understand what alcoholism was. I spent so much time not listening to all of the talk. I spent so much time not paying attention to anything that I was sitting in the middle of the solution and I was hearing nothing. I hear see some heads bobbing. I didn't really know what an alcoholic was. I knew I'd had a pretty bad run with alcohol. And it had gotten me into into a lot of jams. And I knew that I, I wasn't sleeping. And I couldn't eat. And I hadn't been able to look in the mirror for years. And I was full of shame. And when I drank, I drank a lot. And I never stopped. 
Like, the only way I stopped drinking is when something got in my way. But I didn't sit down with anybody to help me put all that together to see if that was alcoholism. So when he said, are you alcoholic, I gave him the only answer that I had, and it was this. And he said, can you control your drinking? And I thought, man, you people are obsessed with controlling your drinking. You have whole meetings about how you tried to control your drinking. I mean, my, why do you want to control your drinking? I mean, honestly, people, like two drinks is going to do it. What's that going to do? Take the edge off? I'm not interested in taking the edge off. I want oblivion. So, what? I, you know, whatever. Control your drinking. So he said, can you control your drinking? And I thought, I have never tried. <laughs> and why would I? Why would I? Like, I want to stop short. Like, so I gave him the only answer that I had. And he handed me five bucks, and he said, here's five bucks. Go find out. We are tired of you treating Alcoholics Anonymous like a joke. Go try to control your drinking, and if it doesn't work, you get back here. If it does work, I never want to see you again. So I went and I found my sister, and I'm like, go get your five bucks. We're out of here. <laughs> That's all I had wanted was somebody with some authority to release me from this godforsaken place and let me go get a drink. And so we, we went out. We, we went out. And to call it a relapse is a stretch because, <laughs> I you know, I had never been recovered from something to actually go back to it. And I was going to have three shots and two beers because, to me, that was moderate drinking. And I was going to stop right there. I wasn't going to drink all the way to oblivion. I wasn't going to cross the tracks. I wasn't going to go to that house. I wasn't going to have to hang out with those people. I wasn't going to get my own bottle. I was just going to have three shots and two beers, and I was going to stop right there. And that was going to be my equation. All I wanted was a little bit of freaking relief. I've now been off alcohol for like five months. It's ridiculous. I don't want to be off alcohol for five months. I just want some freaking relief. And so I have my three shots and two beers, and I wait. And I drank it real fast because that's what you do. I drank for the effect. And it set in. And my shoulders came off my ears a little bit, but not all the way. And my hands, they started to let loose, but they didn't let go. And I thought, you know what? I think my equation was just a little bit off. So I had another shot and another beer and another shot and another beer and another shot and another beer. And guess where I ended up? Crossing the tracks again. Drinking a fifth of vodka right out of the neck. I came to the next day. I had been in a blackout, thank God. I, I, I am a blackout drinker, and I love a good blackout. I remember enough. I came to the next day, and I am beat up, and I'm sick. And God breaks through. God breaks through, and what I hear is, you are young, you are otherwise healthy, and you're going to drink like this for a very, very long time. And I heard Max Shadburn's voice after that, and it said, if it doesn't work, you get back here. So I walked back into Alcoholics Anonymous. That was March 15, 1987. I got there on time. I sat in the middle. I only had one cup of coffee. When the meeting was over, I got in your stupid circle. And as soon as you guys said amen, I was back to the door. And guess who was standing in the doorway? Mac. And he looked at me over top of those glasses again, and he said, did you get a sponsor? 
And I thought, I wonder how he knew I was out. (laughs) And I walked up to every woman in that room and I said, will you sponsor me? And every woman in that room said, no, no, (laughs) no. And so I went to leave the room and Mac hadn't moved a muscle and he just looked at me and he said, well, did you get a sponsor? And I said, no one in here will sponsor me. He said, that's a lie. I said, I'm not asking her. He said, oh, yes, you are. I said, oh, no, I'm not. And he just went like this. So I walked up to the front of the room, and I waited my turn, which I'm not a big fan of, to talk to the great one. And I looked at Jane, and and I... And I looked at Jane and I said, will you sponsor me? And she looked up at me and she took a drag off that cigarette extender and she blew it out and she said, honey, why should I? And instead of telling her where to shove her cigarette extender, which was my plan, what came out of my mouth was because I need to be sober and I don't know how. And I thought, who said that? (laughs) And she said, well, I guess you'll be doing some things differently now, won't you? And she gave me the list. The list of everything I was no longer going to be doing and the list of things that I was going to be doing. And the next day, I was sitting there after school and I was doing my homework contemplating how my life really was over. And um, and it hit 7 o'clock and this enormous car comes rolling in the driveway. Do you guys remember the Ford LTDs from the 70s? Do you remember how big those things were? I mean, they were huge. And they have steering wheels that are about this big around. And you could steer them with one finger, but you really had to steer them. And so, like, if you wanted to make a right-hand turn, you had to start a half a block back. And then it would get up to the corner, and it would consider it. And it would kind of float around the corner. And when you brought that car to a stop, like, the body was too big for it. Because when you brought it to a stop, it would kind of do one of these numbers. And then it would... One of those enormous cars comes floating in the driveway at 7 o'clock. And my mom's like, who in the world's out there? I said, I don't know. I'll go find out. So I went outside. And I knock on the window, and there are two old guys in the front seat, and they roll down the window, and they're smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and listening to country music and laughing about something. And I said, can I help you? And they said, Jane sent us. Get in the car. (laughs) And I said, no, no, I'm good. I went to an AA meeting yesterday. I'm fine. And they said, Jane sent us. Get in the car. And I walked back in the house, and I was like, Ma, AA's here. (laughs) And she said, okay, have fun. Have fun. So I went out and I got in the back seat of this car and these things, I mean, you could fit 12 newcomers in the back seat of one of these cars. And we go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and we get there early. There's nobody else there. So I have to set up the tables and chairs. And then I have to make coffee in a coffee pot that's like that tall. I'm like, I don't know how to make coffee in this. Well, by God, they taught me. And then I had to sit through this entire meeting. I don't understand. I, re, You know, I'm trying to listen now, finally. I'm trying to listen. But I don't understand what you people are saying because you speak a different language. You speak a different language that I'm not tuned into. So I'm doing the best I can to sit still because I don't want anybody telling on Jane, telling Jane on me. So I'm sitting still, and the meeting finally wraps up, and I thought, oh, thank God, I can finally get out of here. I mean, I've been with these old men now for like three hours. And so they, they take me home, or sorry, we leave the meeting. I, I see it. I don't know where all my time went. So we left, we left the meeting, and instead of taking me home, I had to go to the donut shop. 
They take me to a stupid donut shop. I've already been with them for three hours. I just want to go home. But you don't ever get to go home after a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Northeast Ohio. You have to go to the donut shop. And you know what you talk about at the donut shop? Everything you just talked about at the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So not only do I have to sit through it once, but now I have to sit through it a second time. And I am just not happy about that at all. At all. And Tuesday night comes. And Wednesday night comes. And what had happened is this. They had held a group conscience meeting. Mac had called a special meeting. He said, what are we going to do? These kids are ruining Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I think we ought to throw them out. And they had everybody rallied. Everybody was going to throw us out of Alcoholics Anonymous because clearly we were too young to be alcoholic. We didn't belong there anyway, and we were being really disruptive. So they were, everybody, you know, they were all going to throw us out. And there was one man in the room, and this man never, ever talks. His name was Bill Long, and Bill Long does not talk. But in this meeting, he pipes up against the majority, and he says, well, the way I see it is God gave them to us, so they must be our responsibility. And they said, well, what are we going to do with them? And they said, well, it's in the big book. We can't encourage them to go down to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. And Max said, by God, I'll do that. (laughs) And then one of them says, well, what are we going to do if they come back? Somebody's going to have to sponsor them. And they all looked at Jane. And Jane said, I am too tired to sponsor those girls. And they said, and one of the guys in the room, he said, you know what? I have a feeling that these girls are really badly damaged. And the only people they're going to listen to are those of us who are whiteheaded. Jane, you're going to have to take them. And she said, well, then you're all going to have to help. So I had a Monday crew, a Tuesday crew, a Wednesday crew, a Thursday crew, a Friday crew. I mean, if they were fishing, I was in the boat. If they were baking cookies, I was in the kitchen. If they were moving, I was hauling boxes. If they were mowing the lawn, I was raking. I mean, I never got a moment of peace from those people. And there was a moment where I was like 17 years old, and I'm looking around. I was like, oh, my God, all of my friends are 70 years old. (laughs) How did this happen? How did this happen? What they also did is every single night that they would take me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and then take me to that ridiculous donut shop. They would buy me a cup of coffee. They would buy me a donut. They would let me bum cigarettes. And we would read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had divided up the steps. And they tricked me into working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as it's outlined in the book. And I got better and better and better. And they introduced me to a, to a relationship with a loving God. And when I got here, I wasn't even sure that there was a God. And if there was, there was no way he was going to have anything to do with me because I was dirty and I had done a lot of really bad things. And sitting in those donut shops, those old men would tell me their stories. And some of them acted way, way worse than I had. And then they would report to me that they too had a loving relationship with a God that they didn't believe in and that that God was incredibly faithful and kind to them and that they had been forgiven. And I thought, man, if he can forgive them, maybe there's a shot that he'll forgive me. And they taught me how to pray by outlining the very short prayers that are in the text of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. One night they got really mad at me and I had had my God squad. I was taking them, you know, the life's changing problems that I had at 17 because, you know, everything's a big deal. 
And um, and and this guy, all he could say, it was like he was a broken record. Pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. And finally, one night, I said, I don't know how. And he said, Give me your book. So I shoved my book across the table. He opened it and he underlined and highlighted every little prayer in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. He shut it, shoved it back, and he said, "Pick one and try it." And that was enough. That was enough for God to walk into my life and absolutely take over. I just had to be willing. I had to be willing to be willing to be willing. And I can tell you that they they gave me a foundation in Alcoholics Anonymous that has literally been unshakable and unstoppable. Unshakable and unstoppable. And that is what we owe one another. That is what we owe one another. Because life is going to continue to happen. Being human is hard. And when the really hard stuff happens, we have to have a foundation. We must have a foundation that is rooted in in a relationship with a God that is bigger than anything else. Because we need to stay sober through it. Because when we drink, all bets are off. The last time that I was here speaking at this meeting, I was married to a lovely man. His name was Lee. Lee was six foot one. He was bald headed. He had blue eyes. Randy met him. He did the right thing most of the time. He was very squared away. He was a major in the Marine Corps. He had just, when I was here speaking, he had just survived another deployment to Afghanistan where they were taking the fight to the Taliban. He had just started coming all the way home. He and I had just started planning for the future again. I was here on Saturday, and I remember the date, because on that Tuesday, he was killed on his way home from base. And I got that call that we will all get one day because being human is hard and we don't live forever. And he was ripped from my life. And when I'm holding that phone standing in my kitchen and we had worked so hard to get him through those deployments and we had worked so hard to retool our lives and make sure that God was in the middle of it. We didn't even get married until we were both baptized and joined a church so that we could have some structure to work under. Because, you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but we're not wildly successful with the relationships here. (laughs) We had worked so hard to put everything in the right order and to be faithful and loving to one another, and it was working. And when I was here in 2009, I had never been happier or more whole Never. And on Tuesday, everything changed on a dime. And I'm standing in my kitchen, and I'm holding the phone. And one of the guys tells me that he was killed on his way home. And there will be those moments in all of our lives when we are going to have to rely on the relationship we currently have with God, not the relationship that we wished we would have taken the time to build. But we're going to have to rely on what that relationship is right now. And when I'm holding the phone, I remember saying something in my head. I remember saying something like, God, I can't breathe. You have to help me. And I had been practicing living in the presence of God for a couple of years because it was the only way to get through those wartime deployments. And God, to me, is this incredible, incredible golden light that is the outline of a human with no features. And that light came, and it was as if he was standing behind me and wrapped his arms around me like you do when you wrap your arms around your beloved. And he whispered in my ear, and he said, I'm here. 
He didn't say, it's all going to be okay. This You're going to wake up and it was a horrible nightmare. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I'm here. And I moved forward from that point in the arms of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wish I had time to tell you more of that story because it's pretty neat. But the, the, the United States Marine Corps got to see the very best of Alcoholics Anonymous because you came. You came and you surrounded me. You went to every service and every ceremony. And you stayed. And when everybody else started to go home, you guys stayed to back clean up. And the members of my home group of Alcoholics Anonymous, they helped me walk through the heavy lifting of grief. And it was heavy lifting. One of the old timers in my group, he had just lost his wife. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, you sit still and make no decisions based on sadness or fear. And grieve now so you don't have to grieve forever. And what I can tell you is that it took a couple of years, but the heavy lifting of grief finally lifted. And I had started having a conversation with God, and I said, I think I'm ready to get out of the desert, both literally and figuratively. I was living out in the Mojave Desert at the time. And so God transferred me to New Orleans. And I went down there and I ate everything that was slathered in butter and cream sauces. I gained 15 pounds. I listened to live music every day and I came fully awake and alive again. And then a call came and I got promoted again. And I moved to Washington, D.C. and I had an office in the Pentagon. And there were, there were a couple of moments when I was in that Pentagon where I just stood there and I thought, my God, how does a girl like me end up in a place like this? I'm a blue-collar kid from the Midwest. My people are coal miners. How does a girl like me get to a place like this? And I said that out loud to a Marine Corps general officer one day, and he just shook his head and he said, doesn't it have something to do with that God you talk about nonstop? And I said, yes, sir, I believe it does. And now it's Saturday night. I'm in San Diego. I am properly attired even though I rode my Harley and I'm standing I'm standing here in a room full of people who are seeking and doing the will of God how does a girl like me get into a place like this thank you so much for having me